the great thing about zoos and the challenge about zoos is we're looking after living beings and people have very emotional attachments to how living other living beings are are cared for and looked after and when you have poor standards and you have bad things happening that can be quite emotionally difficult for people and it's very understandable and right and absolutely rightfully so um so it does create quite a bit of of um you know quite a bit of controversy and and absolutely a lot of different emotional um reactions for people uh, when you're dealing with difficult situations um but it works both ways right we can get the same thing on the positive end and and we're really working hard to try to drive people's connection to animals so you know it's important for us that when you know we want people to fall in love with with wildlife and we want people to love animals From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Sonic Patel, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news and storytelling. Before we begin the episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory, in a Miskwichi, Wiskigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papaschus Cree territory. The Papaschus Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials, like Frank Oliver, to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on, and your own relationship with this land, and the flora and fauna that you share it with. This planet is currently experiencing a mass extinction event. It's predicted that human activity, like climate change and habitat destruction, drive the current rate of extinction between 100 and 1,000 times greater than natural rates. As we discuss the role of zoos and conservation, we must also recognize the importance of indigenous populations in this issue. Despite being less than 5% of the world's population, and occupying or managing a quarter of surface land, indigenous people support 80% of global biodiversity. Protecting biodiversity means supporting indigenous communities that are on the forefront of conservation efforts. We invite you to think about the ways that you can protect biodiversity and enable conservation work, Indigenous and otherwise. When was the last time you've been to a zoo? And how did it make you feel? Were you excited to see these strange and exotic animals? Or did you feel bad? seeing animals in captivity and living in enclosures far from their home. Or maybe a little bit of both. This week, we're talking about the zoological park, or as they're more commonly called, zoos. These are places where animals live in captivity and on display. We'll cover everything from their origin as status symbols and public entertainment, to their evolution as education and conservation institutions. Joining me this week is Jamie Dorgan, who you heard at the top of the episode. 
Jamie is the director of animal care at the Calgary Zoo slash Wilder Institute, Canada's most visited zoo. He sat down with me to talk about some of the conservation programs there. Yeah, so I've been working at zoos for almost 22 years now. Um, you know, I, I kind of grew up working in agriculture a little bit, so family farm, and then I uh, was super interested in animals, always had a passion for animals and how cool they are. Uh, you know, obviously pets and agriculture first, but, you know, when I finished my degree at UBC in animal science, I had the opportunity to work. I get a seasonal job at a zoo and uh, very quickly after starting, you know, I'd, I'd gone to zoos as a kid a little bit here and there, of course, but very quickly when I started working at the zoo, I, I kind of recognized um, how interesting it was the diversity of the animals, the challenges that came with looking after those animals and making sure that they had everything that they need to thrive uh, under human care was was really interesting to me. And, and you know, I enjoyed that day to day of that. And then also very quickly learned the, the impact zoos could have, um, you know, in a multi pronged way. Obviously, the direct care of animals and the conservation um, and preserving species, um, you know, zoos is, you know, one of the first species I worked with. Um, as a zookeeper was a scimitar horned oryx and, you know, immediately recognized like, oh, wow, this species wouldn't exist if zoos didn't have these animals. And, but what more can we do with that? You know, how do we take this to another level? You know, it's not good enough to just say, yeah, we have them and here they are, come look at them. It's, you know, can we get them back in the wild? And how do we tell people these stories to, you know, really get people to understand the importance of, of these animals to their environments and to, to the planet and to us as people? Um, and taking to that next level. So just that ability for us to preserve the animals, but also educate people on them, have people participate in their conservation as well and continue to grow that. That's always been something for me in my 22 years working in zoos. Um, massive challenge, but you know, the kind of challenge that, uh, that uh, I'm super keen on continuing with. But zoos haven't always been places of good animal care and conservation. In fact, some of the earliest zoos have been some of the least humane. Zoos have been around for a very long time. There is evidence of zoos existing as early as the ancient civilizations of Egypt and Mesopotamia, about 4,500 years ago. But these were collections that were privately owned by the very wealthy and powerful, and what we would now refer to as menageries. Early menageries were probably status symbols, a display of wealth and power, to house and maintain the wildlife brought back by expeditions to faraway lands, or as gifts from foreign leaders. Menageries would continue in ancient civilizations like China and Rome. Some notable menagerie owners include Alexander the Great, who filled his menagerie with animals from conquered lands, Montezuma, whose menagerie was destroyed by Spanish colonizers, William the Conqueror, Henry I, Emperor Charlemagne, and members of France's House of Bourbon, who kept their animals in the Palace Versailles. And menageries were often not exactly the most humane places. Animals were kept in small enclosures, and some menageries, like those maintained in ancient Rome, and much later, the one at Versailles, forced animals to fight each other for entertainment. By the 17th and 18th centuries, what some scholars call the Age of Enlightenment was underway. 
with a growing curiosity in animals and animal studies, publicly accessible zoos started to emerge in Europe. Some of the earliest include the Imperial Menagerie at Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna. Initially intended as a viewing pleasure for the Imperial Court, the menagerie opened to the public in 1779. The menageries of French aristocrats, including that of Versailles, as I mentioned earlier, were relocated to the publicly accessible Menagerie du Jardin de Plans in downtown Paris. In 1826, the Zoological Society of London was founded, and they established a zoo in that city, with a stated purpose of advancing zoology and animal physiology. And many newly created public zoos followed their example, showing a new purpose focused on scientific work, like anatomy. Even today, many zoos maintain a research focus. Zoos, including Calgary's own, and their conservation partners produce and support scientific papers in conservation biology. But even as zoos started to move towards a science focus in the 19th and even early 20th century, the conditions animals were kept in was not always great. Often animals were cramped in small displays, and sometimes people would mistreat them, feeding them and teasing them. As a result, illness and mortality rates were often high. Over the 20th century, people began to oppose animals being confined in bear cages to be ogled, and instead preferred enclosures that gave the illusion of animals being in their native habitats. Interest in taxonomy was being replaced by curiosity in animal actions and behavior as they walked and interacted with each other, other animals, and even people. Zoos increasingly started to tell stories of the animals, turning the zoo into an educational resource on wildlife and animal behavior. Jamie talked about how animal treatment has improved, and the benefits of developing enclosures that mimic natural environments. Have you ever personally felt any sort of conflict or qualms about working with animals in captivity? Uh, I mean, the simple answer is no, but the more complex answer is the reason that it's a no for me is because I, um, I'm always on a mission to strive to do better and make sure that the animals have everything they need, you know, and even here. So at the Calgary zoo, you know, we're very, very cautious, conscientious about how we choose which animals, uh, can have a home here at the zoo. And if we cannot provide the, the appropriate level of care that kind of, uh, at minimum meets, but in all cases attempting to exceed what those animals need to thrive and do well, then that's not a species that we would have here. So, um, you know, we're not going to bring in an animal or a species that can't really do well in human care. It's important to us um, and it wouldn't make any sense for us to do it differently. Uh, is everything perfect? No, absolutely not. You know, there's always opportunities to improve. I, is one thing, like I said, that really drew me to working in this industry right away when I started working at the zoo was, you know, there's always are opportunities to do more and improve and look for, look for, um, look for more, um, look to improve our ability to offer animals a great experience and, and that replicates their wild experience. And, you know, the other thing is in many cases, if not 
if not almost all cases, we can provide um, a better life for a lot of animals than they, their wild counterparts get. So, you know, we have a, a full-time veterinary team that's available at the drop of a hat, you know, 24 seven, 365 to, to support an animal that's in distress or, or has an illness. Um, you know, we can provide them all sorts of medical care that they wouldn't get in the wild. We can protect them from predation and protect them from other stressors that their wild counterparts would feel. Um, and you know, it's on, it's on top of all of that. It's on us to make sure that they have all of those other things that they need that, um, that their wild counterparts would experience. You're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM. This week, we're talking about zoos, how they started and how they've evolved. Joining us is Jamie Dorgan, Director of Animal Care at the Calgary Zoo. Following the Second World War, zoos also started to serve another critical ecological function. Some zoos became breeding centers, where endangered animals bred in captivity could be released back into the wild, restocking diminished natural populations. Species like the Hawaiianese geese and European bison survived because of breeding programs. And as climate change and human activity continue to destroy habitats and cause the current mass extinction event we are experiencing, zoos could play increasingly critical roles in protecting biodiversity and keeping species alive. The Calgary Zoo, as an accredited institution, has joined other zoos in trying to protect biodiversity. The zoo's conservation portfolio is overseen by the Wilder Institute. The institute operates the largest conservation breeding and research facility in Canada. Here's Jamie talking about some of the conservation work that the zoo does. In our animal care area, we've been doing very direct conservation of animals. The Calgary Zoo has been doing for decades. Um, you know, Whooping Crane was one of the first programs. You know, there's those birds. Um, were almost extinct in the wild, you know, down to the 20s in the early 1900s. And thanks to the um, bringing some animals into into human care and being able to work through the uh, that process of breeding them uh, for for release, uh, the the numbers have bounced back quite a bit. Still, lots of work to do, and the Calgary Zoo has been doing it for almost three decades now. And we made significant progress and had lots of bumps on the road along the way, but we're feeling great about that. So. Um, you know, we're raising birds here that are being directly released into the wild, which is super exciting and really fulfilling, uh, obviously, for the staff that do the work and look after those animals to see them go be released into the wild and, and uh, have uh, chicks of their own out there. Uh, but on top of that, it creates a really great story for us to be able to talk to the public about, you know, how do you how can you support uh, us in doing this work? How are you part of uh, helping save whooping cranes and how important they are in the wild, how important their ecosystems are for us as people uh, to be able to continue to live on the planet and those types of things. Vancouver Island marmots, another one that this zoo has been doing since the early 2000s and another species that would probably be extinct if it wasn't for zoos such as Calgary and Toronto that were part of that program right off. Um, we've been able to release and animals repeatedly every year into the wild and, and bump those numbers up by 10, almost 20 times as many as there were when they were down to the, to the low 20s as well. So, 
you know, it's, it's another really exciting story. And over the last few years, we've started working with uh, greater sage grouse, trying to prevent their extirpation in Canada. Uh, they're close and we're working really hard on that program. It's been a, it's been a very challenging one. It's a difficult species to manage under human care, but, you know, thanks to our knowledge about galliforms in general and other, other species we've worked with over the years, you know, we've been able to leverage our expertise and make some significant changes and impacts there and we're releasing birds every year and uh, we do a head starting program with burrowing owls and other species that's being slowly disappearing from Canada and as this range is shrinking we've had some great success getting animals in and out uh, more recently we've taken fishers from Alberta and and helped to re-establish them in in Washington state where they were extirpated about 100 years ago I'm curious about the, you know, what goes into choosing which species are part of that? Is it all sort of based off of what species are most at risk or do you need to try and balance that with trying to have quote unquote more charismatic species that'll bring people to the zoo? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of things. Actually, we, our conservation science team has worked really hard to build a framework over the last several years in term, in, in helping us prioritize and choose species. Really, the priorities, um, uh, charismatic species, that's less of a concern for us. You know, we have, um, you know, we have a lot of species at the zoo that are charismatic that we don't necessarily do reintroduction programs on, but they, they, they're here as part of breeding programs, then they, they do other things, right? So, you know, they, they help their wild counterparts sometimes as umbrella species by, you know, either directly or indirectly having habitat protected or, you know, with people falling in love. So love with them. So tigers, if people love tigers and people want to protect wild tigers and they want to protect the wild habitat that tigers live in, so many species benefit from that. For us on our conservation breeding programs, we're really focused on primarily who needs us the most. Um, can we can we have an impact? Is this a species that we can actually work with and we think we'll have success with? And it doesn't need to be, oh, for sure, but do we think we can try to tackle this one? Do we have the skills, abilities, the expertise to be able to do it or can we get it? And are there other partners out there we can work with or have similar priorities? You no, know, we're very comfortable with non-charismatic species as well. You know, a lot of people don't care about leopard frogs. Uh, we do, we've been working with them for a long time. So um, we're currently looking at a tree species as well, potentially helping there and getting into plants because we have a strong horticulture team with expertise here too. So we're looking at that and I don't think it's gonna attract a lot of attention that, uh, you know, something that's cute like a burrowing owl or a Vancouver Island marmot would, but you know, it's not gonna stop us from trying to help save the species if all the other things pull together. I was looking at the burrowing owl uh, program and one of the things I thought was interesting was, um, so from what I saw, Burrowing owls are kept from at a vulnerable stage from sort of juvenile into adulthood before they are released. And I'm wondering, you know, do these species that are, are raised um, as part of a conservation program face any disadvantages or advantages compared to their counterparts that are raised in the wild? Yeah, it's, it's a, I, I really like the question because it doesn't have a simple answer either. I mean, if you, if, if you, actually, if I had to give you a simple answer, yeah, absolutely they do. For sure, you know it is different. We can't, as much as I as I said, we try to replicate and give animals every opportunity in a, in a human care setting that they have in the wild. 
it's never the same, right? It's not going to be exactly the same. And, and there are advantages that we do give these animals here that they wouldn't have in the wild. You know, it's easier for them to get food, obviously. It's easier for them to get medical care and all these things. So, so we absolutely influence these animals to some degree. And, and what that impact is, it can be quite variable. And, it, you know, and that's by species, by individual. We're continually working on trying to, you know, always look at that and improve it. And, you know, a huge part of what we do here is not just the, the raising the animals and releasing them. Uh, it's also a whole bunch of science around that. Whooping cranes, we've been working really hard the last few years to try to prevent hand rearing birds completely and having them all be parent reared. So a lot of the facilities previously, including here, had done a lot of puppet rearing with those birds to try to have them not imprint on people. Um, but those birds don't necessarily thrive as well as birds that are parent reared out in the wild. With Vancouver Island marmots, we, over the last few years, we recently have done a predator study on them. So we're trying to simulate uh, predators in captivity to see if we get different reactions from those animals and then comparing their success in the wild um, seeing if we're seeing some of that generational loss of predator aversion. And we think that we are seeing a little bit of it and potentially maybe a bit of an influence there. And of course, we're concerned if we're releasing animals that are less predator averse, that are prey animals like a Vancouver Island marmot, if they're not reacting appropriately or quickly enough to a wolf or a cougar sighting or a golden eagle sighting, then yeah, there may be a risk there of decreased ability to react. We do worry a little bit about things like, um, you know, captive selection, although we are very conscientious not to do it actively, you know, selecting animals that we want to have skittish animals. We want to have animals that, that struggle a little bit more, react more. Um, you know, there is a little bit of um, indirect selection there. You know, we do have sometimes we know that some animals are more likely to injure themselves or, or die in captivity because they have maybe a stronger reaction to a predator and they might see a human as a predator. So sage grouse is a classic example of that. You know, their predator predatory reaction is to flush and fly off several kilometers as quickly as possible. When they do that in a, in an aviary, they're, you know, they're, they're more likely to, you know, fly into a wall and injure themselves and those types of things. So if our uh, animals that are, best adapted to escape a predator in the wild or worse adapted to live in a human care environment, then there is that bit of a conflict that we want to try to avoid, right? We don't want to create a sage grouse that's never scared when they see a, a coyote. You know, we need them to be scared of coyotes when they're out in the wild. And if there is any genetic component to that, of course, we want to make sure that we're trying not to select against that. In addition to supporting species at risk through breeding programs, the Calgary Zoo also helps support communities around the world with conservation efforts. This often means building capacity to protect the wildlife in their natural habitats, and to provide financial incentives for doing so. And, to me, this program really demonstrates the evolution of zoos, from the menageries that took wildlife from distant places for spectacle, to conservation institutions that protect wildlife in their native habitat. We're working really hard with community-based conservation programs. Um, we have a program that's been going on for decades with the Calgary Zoo in Ghana with hippos. And really, it's a community-based conservation. It has nothing to do with our hippos here necessarily, other than the hippos here telling the story. But we know we've been able to support some um, some communities in Ghana with um, you know finding ways for them to. 
uh, economically benefit from protecting hippos and protecting the natural habitat. But even though the Calgary Zoo and many other accredited zoos are undertaking critical conservation work, the historical and sometimes even modern zoos that keep animals in inhumane conditions continues to challenge the image of zoos. I guess the biggest challenges for us are, are getting our message out there. You know, we, we really, we do so much conservation work and we do, we, we have such high standards for animal welfare. We, I think we do a fantastic job of, of caring for the animals we have and giving them a fantastic life. And then we want to extend that to the conservation work that we're doing and continue to try to save species. It's really hard for us to get that consistent message out there and, and really um, get the get that buy-in across across the board. So um, it is absolutely one of our biggest challenges, and a challenge we're looking to push harder to take on over the next decade is is getting people more engaged with the zoo, understanding the conservation work that's happening here, and that they can be a part of. You know, we want people to be able to directly and indirectly participate in that conservation work. It's easy enough for us to say, hey, come to the zoo for a visit, have a nice day. And by the way, some of the money that you spent today is going towards releasing animals into the wild and, and directly saving those species. But we would like to really take that a step further and have people become much more engaged in that process and really, really have that connection and, and buy into it so that we can continue to do more of that work um, and get people to care in their day-to-day -day life on how they can have that impact on saving wildlife in a lot of other ways too, right? You know, making obviously things like making good shopping decisions and, and, and looking at opportunities for things they can do around their house or in their backyard to promote wildlife and, and live with nature. Zoos have experienced many changes over the many years humans have kept wildlife in captivity. From the menageries of old, symbols of wealth and power, to the inhumane cages of early public zoos, to a greater focus on public education and species conservation. Yet for some people, zoos remain contentious places, perhaps because of concerns about animal welfare, or maybe even just how strange it can feel to see something we think of as wild in captivity. But as humans continue to impact the environment in greater and more destructive ways, zoos may be critical for protecting animals, both in captivity and even in the wild. And it seems like the Calgary Zoo and the Wilder Institute have no plans to slow down anytime soon. If there's one thing I really want people to know, it's that, you know, um accredited zoos, high quality zoos like the Calgary Zoo are so focused on conservation and saving species and our ability to, to um, connect with people to do that as well. And, you know, it's just not the zoo that people think, you know, that people think of from 20, 30, 40 years ago. And high quality accredited zoos are doing so much work, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars going into conservation and saving species. Our ability to do that work is, is second to none because of our, our decades of experience of learning about animals and understanding their needs and how to care for them properly and, and all those little nuances. You know, we people are obviously and rightfully so worried about 
the direction that the earth is going and how we're destroying the planet so quickly and all these other things that's it's all real it's it's a tough one but you know i prefer to look at the positive side of it and know that you know we can we can turn things around absolutely we can and it all starts with with animals because it's really easy for people to fall in love with animals and be amazed by them that's all the time we have for this week thanks for listening i've been your host sonic patel Thank you very much to Jamie Dorgan from the Calgary Zoo for being part of this episode. You can find more information about the conservation work the Wilder Institute does at wilderinstitute.org. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. This week's episode was written by myself, Sonic Patel, and produced by Hannah Cunningham. You can reach us for comments or questions via email, terra at cjsr.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Terra Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa. Terra Informa.